Let me sincerely apologize to the listeners out there for going dark for this damn long. Ever since my son was born, I have zero free time. If I'm not working, cleaning the house, tending to my wife, taking care of my boy, or walking Maui, or just trying to catch up on sleep, I have zero extracurricular time. Catherine and I have been in survival mode getting up every couple of hours to feed him. It's getting better now, and I've managed to find time on the weekends to do some editing. Let's see how sustainable that is. Major props to all the parents out there. I now know what it is to be sleep deprived for days on end and barely functioning. I'm pretty quick with my high order math and I've been struggling to do basic arithmetic in my head. It's true that it feels like being drunk. Many things have transpired since last we spoke that I gotta mention, right? The GTA 6 leak happened where I understand a hacker got through with someone's Slack credentials. It's not even that hard as I understand it. That's the same shit that happened when I was at EA. So, you know, to make it harder, they started logging us out after some hours of inactivity to force us to re-authenticate. One of the major news around this and in the development footage was the shock of how bad the in-development looked. And it's crazy to me. I mean, in this day and age with so many of us developers out there candidly talking about how we do what we do, there's people out there that seriously think that we invest a whole bunch of money up front and polishing all of our assets and environments without ever really laying down any core game experience and fun factor. Final assets don't come in till at least like the six months before ship. Y'all should know better, especially if you listen to this podcast. On another note, my first GDC 2021 talk, the panel entitled Avoid an Identity Crisis as a Technical Designer is now free on YouTube for everyone's consumption. Go check it out. Tell your friends. Hit me back. Let me know what you think. And uh, I just got back from Orlando. My alma mater, Fulso University, brought me down. It was my first flight with my son to see my father's side of the family. And I got to talk to both current students and incoming. I met some amazing alumni that I hope I get to invite on this show. I also got to connect with some inspirational folk. I hope that they got some helpful insight from me. I know I would have valued hearing it when I was in their shoes, making a call on what I wanted to do with the rest of my life when I was a student over there. And if you've landed here as a result of watching my GDC talk, listening to me at the behind the scenes at Full Sail, welcome. You can always get at me at my website, lkingpin.com, or email me at john at outofplayarea.com. So now, with all of that out of the way, let's start the show. On the extremely long delayed episode 39 of the Game Devs Podcast, Out of Play Area, we sit down with a great friend of mine, fellow outlaw till the end and Full Sail University alumni, Jason Nobler. Jason's been a software engineer at many companies around, including Digital Embryo in New Jersey, Rockstar Games in San Diego, to where he is today at Lightning Games in Philly. And it's there where he's working on his own game engine entitled Harmony. He's got like 50 digital slot machine games on casino floors and of course Red Dead Redemption under his belt. Previously recorded on July 31st. Please welcome from Philadelphia, Jason Nobler. Bienvenido, bienvenue. Welcome to the Out of Play Area podcast. A show by video game devs for game devs 
where the guests open up one-on-one about their journey, their experiences, their views, and their ideas. No ads, no bullshit. Join us as we venture far out of the play area with your host, seasoned game designer, John Diaz. I want to know where you're at these days, what you're doing. I've been at this company called Lightning Gaming. I've been there for a long time, like we're talking like 11 years now. Jeez, it's been that long that you moved back there, huh? Yeah, it's been a journey, I guess. The main appeal to it is just being able to work on tech, you know, having the autonomy to take it wherever I want it to go. I don't have anybody above me telling me like, oh, we need this. If like I want to implement like these graphical shaders, I'll allocate time to do so. You have full autonomy and control over the whole tech stack you've touched (laughs) at least or written like 80% of the the source code. How do you plan out your time or your goals or or figure out what you even want to work on? I'm very chaotic in terms of my workflow. You know, some people are structured. They have like a notepad and they write down like their to-do list and do all that. Yeah. I just cannot, my brain doesn't work that way. I have to just, okay, I feel like this is the priority in my mind right now. And I'll just juggle things around and work on whatever I think is necessary. I get like Teams messages saying like, oh, there's a bug in your editor. You know, I'll just try to like clump that into when I'm working in that area and stuff like that, just all in my head, (laughs) which isn't like maybe the most ideal, but it's been working for me. Yeah, man, you've hung on for 11 years, just kind of keeping that thing sharp. I imagine with that workflow, you're constantly deploying and constantly re-tuning and keeping things updated. Yeah, because like we're a really small dev team. So it's only three programmers and like two to three artists at any given time. We don't have any producers. Okay, so everyone kind of self-governs. Yeah, because when I first got there back in 2011, their existing framework was like written in action script, which is like Flash essentially. <laughs> Jeez. That makes sense for little casino games that you can get by like that. Yeah, it was kind of crazy. So like I saw it running on the cabinet, like the action script game. And like I looked at like the task manager and it's using like over a gigabyte of memory, just like the program itself. I guess because Flash is very software based, it doesn't utilize like the hardware as well. Even though they have a full cabinet dedicated. Yeah. And the cabinet had like a discrete graphics card, which was probably not even getting used. <laughs> wow. But I quickly replaced it with a DirectX engine that I had been working on. And that was just like the first step of my lightning gaming journey, I guess. Curious how you got there, what the interview was like. You know, I imagine if someone comes to you and is like, yo, we need an engineer to write our editor and our back end and front end. You will get to do however you want to do it kind of thing. I, I don't know if that was how it was pitched to you, I imagine. It definitely wasn't pitched that way. (laughs) They were just like, we need gameplay programmer. Yeah, just me like moving back to Philadelphia. There isn't game jobs here. There aren't really. So this was just like the one and only kind of. There there was another job that did like bar top kind of games Mm. that I guess like solitaire, whatever those things are, like those little like things you see in a bar sometimes. And I was like in Jersey. So it was either that or this place called Lightning Gaming. And the interview for Lightning Gaming wasn't anything particularly interesting. I just sat with the programmer that was there at the time. And I just chatted with him talking about Rockstar Gaming and your experience. Yeah, my previous experiences with that. And I got the job fairly easily. 
Nice. I guess like you, you know, you were just proving that you knew how to code just by your experience and your resume. There wasn't any kind of like whiteboard questions or talk to me about data structures or anything like that. No, it, there wasn't anything like that because it was all probably up to like the one programmer that was there at the time to just like go with the course. And now like that's like my job. Like I have to interview people and I have to like come up with like the questions and such and uh, I've experimented with different things. I find it very difficult to interview people and gauge their skill level. I, I always give them way more benefit. It's kind of bitten us a little bit. Like we bring on some people and they don't work out. <laughs> Jay, you got to get more strict with your hiring, bro. I don't think I'm cut out for the hiring <laughs> role. Because <laughs> it's your code base, right? So it's just like, hey, I'm going to need people to touch this, that, the other thing. So one major initiative that we've been doing over the last couple of years since the pandemic started was porting my current game engine to work on the web browser. The current game engine that I've been writing is open source and you can check it out. I'll talk about it later. It's all written in C++ and it has an OpenGL renderer. And there's this awesome build system called Inscripten. And it takes your C++ code and transpiles it and puts it through this pipeline of other tools. And eventually it spits out WebAssembly. And it does a whole lot more than just that. It'll take all your game assets yeah. and pack them into like one file. Mm -hmm. And it tricks your code into thinking that one file is your local file system when running in the web browser. And the end result is I have this game engine that now is able to run on various desktops, Windows, Linux, etc. But now it can also run in the web browser, which is, I think, is super cool. From anywhere, right? Like I can load it from a, any mobile device to anything. Any, anything that can load a web browser, I can now play these games. Yeah. And wow. it's you could just simply go to a URL and if it's hosting the appropriate files. You know, you just need an HTML that launches the, the JavaScript and then takes it from there. It's crazy. Like audio works, like out of the box, like oh. input works. Because <laughs> under the hood in my game engine, I use SDL. And if you're familiar with that, it has those type of utilities that are platform independent, so to speak. What's SDL stand for? Simple direct layer. I think there's actually like media direct layer, something like that. It's been around forever. Is that just for all the asset handling? Oh, no, it's like a whole framework that, you know, it does a lot of your platform necessities, like creating a window, handling input. So is your editor now a web based editor as well? Like you can just kind of edit in the cloud? So the editor is a application built in Qt. Qt is like some GUI framework that's C++. That's all offline. So okay, Makes sense. the editor and the engine are kind of like two, I so, guess, projects, I guess you okay. could say. Yeah. And, like um, like a Visual Studio projects. Yeah. My assumption was going to be that like, hey, you know, does the editor live under the game or the game, you know, editor on top of the game, but they're completely separate. Well, no, so you're right about that. The reason it's written with Qt and instead of like WinForms or some other like C-sharp thing that would probably be easier is because I want to run the game engine in the editor. So you get the preview and, you know, kind yes. of all that good stuff. So I've definitely tackled this problem multiple times in my past where I want an editor and I want what you see is what you get kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I finally kind of achieved that. And it's really difficult to program for that because it's always like a chicken and an egg problem. Like if I'm creating like a sprite, so to speak, and I'm building out like it's it's different states or whatever. Yeah. If I'm building that out in the editor, it also needs to work in the engine 
but I'm like modifying the states and stuff, but it needs to update in the, I guess the runtime editor part yeah, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you kind of have to do some tricks to make that work sometimes. And it's not as elegant as you would like it to be. Yeah. You get that like preview in editor thing. Right now I'm actually working on the entity creation portion. It's so hard to explain this stuff without like visuals. What's exciting to hear is the fact that you've put all this time onto this tool set and essentially it's a full engine with an editor and it's open source, runs an open GL and now with other middleware, would you call it middleware or just like, you know, whatever inscription is and, and, and these other things now you can deploy to every damn platform. Yeah, I mean, so... With a game engine, you kind of like run into like, why are you trying to reinvent the wheel? Yeah, because there's so many out there now, right? Yeah, I feel like it needs to have some purpose. And the purpose that I'm going for is I'm one person. I can't compete with Unity. I can't compete with Unreal. Can't compete with Godot even. Godot's another open source engine, right? Like, I'm yeah, pretty, pretty and that's pop- picking up a lot of popularity, which is pretty cool. You should check it out if you're. You should check out tokens. Godot. Okay, putting it, put, putting it on my list. My focus, I guess, for this game engine, which my game engine is called Harmony, and it's supposed to be a cross-platform engine, but it's focused on 2D and like 2.5D. And I also feel like when you're building in it, it's way simpler. Like the editor is more straightforward. Like when I open up Godot or some other tool that I, I am not familiar with or something like it, you're kind of overwhelmed a lot. And I tried uh, to build the UI. So it's kind of just like everything you see is like what you should work on next, like where like you have to go to next. So it kind of just like naturally flows when you're working in the editor. I'm definitely going to drop links in the show notes. But if I wanted to Google the, the engine, what would I Google? Like if I look up Harmony Game Engine, would I find it? So I've tried it in the past, like searching for the, like those terms, and I never find it. So yeah. you would have to search for game overture with an underscore. So game underscore overture, and then find my GitHub page, and you'll probably find a link at that point. Game overture, Jason Nobler, GitHub. Damn, yeah. look at all these hits or contributions, I should say. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> I'm running on 2,600 commits about right now. Can I see the history yet, yeah, bro? It goes back to 2010, does it? 2012, I think, is when I started. Yeah, so that was essentially right after Red Dead Redemption 1, give or take. We're kind of like going through the timeline in different... uh... Yeah, well, you prefer we go sequentially? I can totally do that. Let's go back to the origin of Jay Nobler and where the hell you fell into games or was it through... Was it engineering first or was it games first is what I'm curious about. So as a kid, like, I don't know, maybe like 10 or younger. I knew I wanted to be a part of the creative process in making video games. I didn't know exactly what. I just knew I had to be making games. I think my earliest memories are me playing NES at like age four or five. What? How how, how is that even possible? My mom also documented things when I was like growing up. She like made like this calendar and like she talks about me playing Nintendo at age four. What games do you remember, man? I just remember... Just like Super Mario, mainly. The one. The yeah. one. Yeah. I mean, when I was older, we had more games and, you know, we went through different consoles and all that. But mm-hmm. either way, so I knew I wanted to make video games. I also was really into computers as a kid. And neither of my parents were techie at all. Like, okay. not in the slightest. But my mom had bought me a, my first computer, which had Windows 95 on it. Fucking Windows 95. Yeah, and the hard drive had a massive one gigabyte of storage. Yo, 
So like, you know, there's, you know, a regular sized mechanical hard drive with its max storage of one gigabyte. That's yeah, what the time we're talking about here. Yeah. So shout outs to my mom because my parents were divorced at that time. And like, she still like got it together for me. She, she knew it was like important. Was that something you kind of like kept expressing or just you got it and then therefore you kind of went full in on it? Yeah, I mean, I knew I wanted to make video games and I, I knew I loved computers. So at some point I it combined the two. And yeah. I was like, all right. I'm going to nope. become a programmer. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, boom, what what marries both of these worlds? It's crazy that you say that, Jay, because a lot of people never really make that connection. It's usually kind of falls into their lap or someone tells them, hey, this is a thing. But you're saying you just kind of figured it out. You're like, yo, these things are made this way. They're software, they're programmed. And that's what I want to do with my life. Yeah, I mean. When I was a, a kid, like I didn't really understand what programming was even, but I did analyze how games were made. Like I would analyze like the mechanics of whatever game I was playing. Do you remember some of the things that stuck out early in your game dissection? I would always like, oh, it would be better if they did it this way or something, you know, not thinking like how hard it is to, you know, write assembly code. <laughs> That's so true. Jay. In a lot of our conversations, you were always making hypothetical improvements. You're like, yo, psh, they should have did it this way. Or whenever we were playing games, I remember whatever it was, bro. I don't know, Donkey Kong or Plants of Zombies or Street Fighter or something. It's like, That's so dumb that it works that way. It should totally yeah. work this other way. I'm like, yeah, Jay knows. <laughs> well, you know, college comes around and like I saw a lot of, you know, high school kids, you know, have a lot of like anxiety about choosing their colleges and stuff. But, you know, for me, you knew it sounded like you knew exactly what you wanted to do. Yeah, it was like a no brainer. Like <sighs> there was two colleges to choose from back in 2004, which was uh, DigiPen up in the northwest over here, over here. Yep. Yeah. And uh, yeah, then Full Sail. See, it was easy back then. <laughs> Just flip yeah. a coin or which which coast are you on or <laughs> that basically determined that. Yeah, pretty much. And, uh, you know, I had gone to Florida bunch of times for like vacation and stuff so mm -hmm. kind of just made more sense to choose that and also like the accelerated program where like you finish up in two years was also a nice perk so it also made me choose full sale yeah man that's an easy one over digipen right because digipen is more traditional longer essentially you got to pay for that time as well i mean they, they go deeper as as well but i really like that accelerated no time to digress or get distracted right it's just like boot camp yeah. style I mean, you know how full full sale went. It was a pretty awesome time. I guess. Yeah, man. Uh, what What do you remember from full sale? You know, like how did your desire of like, hey, I'm going to be a game programmer, and then going through full sale to be like, hey, you're going to program, you're going to do a little design. They're going to give you, you know, start you off with like Visual Studio, and then teach you a whole bunch of other APIs. At full sale, like uh, they had different degrees when we were there, but they only had one game development degree at yeah. the time it was a bachelor of science game development degree program i guess mm -hmm. it's called game dev and design yeah so it was i guess it was like less on design and more about the engineering as parts of it i mean i would say like 80 20 yeah yeah probably and i think nowadays they have like a whole design course i'm, I'm not up to date on yeah they have, they have everything man everything you can yeah. imagine right they have like game art game animation game yeah. design uh yeah, and game, game programming. Which is interesting because back when we were in the classes, they were like, oh, you should always specialize. You, you should specialize. Like, mm -hmm. you should specialize in AI, you should specialize in tools. 
Yeah. He should specialize in graphics maybe or something like, I mean, at the time when I, when we were going through full sale, I was like, I want to do gameplay code. You know, who, who doesn't want to do gameplay That's the fun one. Yeah. That, that's yeah. like the, 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 like the exact what you see on screen, what happens when you press the controller, right? Like, yeah, it's usually what you want to do. If you're not having fun, like programming, like a projectile to like do damage, then like, I mean, what is a game programming? So yeah. Anyways. Yeah. For that, go work on software. Yeah. Do you remember your final project? I actually have the manual too, like right here. This Was it called like, Onslaught? Yeah, so th- this is a game called Onslaught, The Paths of Least Resistance, which wasn't like the greatest title, but the game was uh, ambitious for a final project at full sale. Because what was it? it? Was, was it three months? I I think it was about three months, yeah. yeah three months. And you, you weren't allowed to use a game engine either. You mm-hmm. had to build your own stuff from scratch, essentially. You were allowed to use two APIs, I think yeah. was the rule. I, and, I remember uh, I used the I used physics API and I think we used like exact audio or something like that. Well, we we need okay. obviously something something to import assets. I don't I don't remember. I just remember physics I wrote I wrote the wrapper for that. And then I remember audio was exact. I think we used Fmod, but exact F-mod. everybody been. was using Fmod for audio, man. Jeez. Yeah. That's funny yeah. they use exact. I didn't even know. Like uh, it was it wasn't me, right? It was it was yeah. our other programmer. I think it was like Mario Valencia, something like that. Oh, I, I, it's it? funny because we used exact at uh, Lightning Gaming when we first started. My DirectX uh, engine was using exact for the audio at the time. I think uh, that's what it was, right? It was just like both Microsoft based, and I'm sure they kind of worked nicely together. I think is what happened. Yeah, it's like a very microsoft windows oriented audio thing i I think i Um, remember the gui was pretty nice and that you just kind of drag the audio into it and it kind of like spits out the whatever asset that the code needed yeah and also the the gui allowed you to set up like audio cues so like if you had like footsteps for instance you could have like five different footsteps and you can throw them all into like one sound cue that the sound cue will then randomly choose which footstep to use or whatever based off like a shuffle or whatever and in fact I copied all of those ideas into my game editor. <laughs> so now my audio allows you to do exactly just that. What do they say, man? Good artists, the best artists steal or copy, same thing. Yeah. And in yeah. my case, just like, I, I do that a lot, actually. Uh, the the whole like user experience, I guess, I've pretty much copied like what Visual Studio kind of has. So mm-hmm. like I have like the same top bar, like the same stuff like you'll find there. And like, I guess it's, kind of typical gooey program it is for windows you know, but we say inspiration right let's we get yeah. inspirations from i like it because right good good ui is just intuitive it's like hey how does software work right are things where i expect them to be yeah mm-hmm. so it's funny because like full sale was saying okay you want to specialize into something and you know me i, I became a, a tools programmer or like an engine programmer and that was not on my mind initially because if you remember the tools course at full sale was kind of like meh it was like mel yeah, scripting it, oh god <laughs> dude, man, mel scripting was rough like i don't know if that thing was designed to like make you hate <laughs> writing tools but i know exactly <laughs> like i was like i'm never being a tools programmer after taking dude. that course like i don't want to do mel scripting yeah um, man and I, I don't remember what it was about mel i know a lot of tech artists still rock in there but i don't know if it was just like there was no debugger available you just kind of had to like write and pray that things worked uh, yeah mm-hmm. and like the documentation was very dry i remember but i guess it could be cool like if you were a tech artist and like you want 
you know, your stuff to have some sort of additional tooling with it. It could sound interesting. I mean, Rockstar, I don't know. Did you ever see like the design tools that we had at Rockstar? Because it was definitely Maya based for a lot of like our level editing. And I'm sure there was male rappers that took everything in the scene and exported it in a way that the scripts could digest. I do recall Mel being used at Rockstar. I mm-hmm. thankfully didn't have to touch it. <laughs> I've worked on other various aspects of the asset pipeline when I was there. Let's talk about the tools programming part. So you thought you were going to be a gameplay programmer. That's kind of what you did on your final project. Uh, you were doing UI. You were doing gameplay interactions, collision detection, things like that. Yeah, so where actually I, I learned to realize that I like writing tools was the Windows course, actually, of all things. Yeah. So the Windows course, we had to create like a GUI application that was like a tic-tac-toe, I think, where you just like mm-hmm. click the GUI app and like the first tic-tac-toe. One. Yeah, and just making like like a little GUI tool just kind of like clicked with me. Like I liked it. it uh, the course was taught by like Charles Pizalt or whatever his name was. Yo, you remember his name. I remember, yeah, yeah. I remember calling him just Chuck, right? Like, I think people just called him Oh, Chuck. yeah, it was just Chuck, yeah. And if you remember the book that came with the course, it was I something see. he wrote. The book oh, is, shit. like, four inches thick. I yeah, know, like, dude. <laughs> uh, freaking Windows, man. So that was the like, class. Yeah, that was the class. You write your own little Windows apps, Windows applets. Yeah, and I, I had used... Like, I think I don't remember the order of the classes, but, like, at, like, SGP or SGD, like, I, mm-hmm. I made, like, a little windows app tool that would take a texture it would take a a sprite sheet Mm -hmm. and you would be able to manually draw rectangles over the sprite sheet to pull out the different frames or whatever very tedious still and not ideal (laughs) but um it was that was my first uh, stick of my toe in the water kind of for yeah trying to kind of like create something that handles a lot of the manual labor of getting your assets imported or, or something yeah, and then, you know, having to build the game engine, kind of, well, not a game engine, but like having to build the game from scratch mm-hmm. and for the final project also kind of like got us there. So the final project, my team was great. Some of the uh, friends of the podcast, Chris Barasa was on my team. Shout out to Chris Barasa, episode 30, I think. John Bro, John Stephen Bro. Brown, John Rule, and Mickle up John were a lot of John. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what everyone else is doing besides Chris nowadays, but. It'd be cool to maybe get in touch with those guys and see what they're up to. For yeah, sure, man. You know, industry small is it's really a thing. I know there's, it feels like there's an influx of a new generation of developers, right? Like the homebrew indie devs that are doing their things on game jams and Discord channels all around the world. But like, super curious to see where these other people are and what they what they've been up to. It sounds like the Windows programming was kind of one of the one of the classes that had an impact on you in full sale. I only realized that now, like thinking like my thoughts, it, like I never like really considered how much of an impact it may have had because mm-hmm. other classes I remember more vividly, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's funny. I remember DirectX being what it is. I remember the class not really resonating with me that much, but then how much it's paid off or how much I've used it since it's kind of like disproportionate, I think is the word. 
Yeah, and we we had both OpenGL and DirectX, and mm-hmm. I don't remember at the time which one I liked more, but I'm not even sure which one I like more now. I mean, obviously, I have a lot more experience with OpenGL as that's what my engine's written in, but now it's like, okay, you should probably be thinking about Vulkan. Why is that? It's just more like the successor to OpenGL, so to speak, and it's already pretty well adopted, and it's mm-hmm. only going to get better. And I'm pretty sure it works within Scripten. Still, oh. uh, I, I'd have to double check that. And that's just if, that Vulkan would be just another graphics API, right? All, all, all the rendering. Yeah. And I, I kind of wrote Harmony to be pretty modular. So it has an abstract interface for a renderer. So I could pull out the OpenGL and put in DirectX if I really wanted to or Vulkan. Uh-huh so to speak. That's well designed, man. That's well designed. I've had a lot of iteration and practice writing engines, and I think I finally got it to the point where I'm happy with this one. I'm going to go forward with it, and I don't ever see myself starting over. (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of developers think the same way. I think that's why you see the massive adoption behind the Unreal's and the Unity's or whatever in-house tech studios have built. Right, They just kind of keep working on top of it so that they don't have to start from scratch. Yeah, it just really isn't practical to be able to write a game engine mm-hmm. and make, you know, make a living with it as well. I have a very unique career and that I kind of been able to do this. All the things kind of just fell into place. I mean, after Full Sail, I got my first game industry job at a place called Digital Embryo. Oh my God, Digital Embryo is crazy. So, oh, where should I start? Should I start with like the interview process? Because... I'm curious. Yeah, I'm curious what the interview process was like, especially for a student coming out of college, right? Like, I think you never really know what to expect or prepare for. And I'm curious how it went. This place is in Old Bridge, New Jersey. And the interview process, I finally make it to the studio because the directions I had took me to some residential house. But (laughs) this before Google Maps. Yeah, I had like printed out like a map quest. Printed directions. Absolutely. Yeah. So I show them the final project, the game. What, you had it on like a laptop or something? I brought in a CD with it, I think. Oh, I think I might have brought in a laptop. Move. I might have brought in the, the, the full cell laptop. But yeah, I had it with me and they thought it was cool. And like, I, it went really well. So they trusted me with a Nintendo DS dev kit and the manual printed on like 200 pages bound together which is like all confidential, by the way. And I didn't sign any NDA. And they were like, okay, go make something for us. I think I already had gotten the job, but they were like, okay, go do this as part of the interview. So I take it home. I'm living at my parents' house. I'm like on like their coffee table with my laptop and my like Nintendo DS that I I own and using it with like this dev kit that I have, which is pretty awesome. Like back in uh, 2007. Yeah, I think people today listening to that will be like, oh, yeah, that's that's part of the course. That's normal. You know, we get shipped dev kits to the house. I was like, nah, man, yeah. in 2007, that was unheard of. You don't get yeah. any equipment in your house. That thing is under <laughs> lock and key in the office with, like, careful barcode tracking. Yeah, man. yeah, especially with, like, Nintendo, too. Like, yeah, they're, they're, the, they're the most strict, yeah. as I understand. Yes, that's me, too. So I put together, like, a little framework using, like, the low-level API and, like, me, like, going through like this 200 printed out page manual, trying to like wrap up like critical functionality, like asset importing, rendering, etc. I didn't realize until like much later that there's a Nintendo middleware called Nitro that did like a lot of that grunt work for me. But yeah. I just 
I didn't know about it. So either way, I made like a little demo with like the various like rendering effects that the various different test projects had. Got the job. So based on the project that they asked you to do, you were kind of able to show them like, yeah, I can do, I can do what you need. I can do what I would actually be doing on the job, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I, I, it was like it was like little rendering demos and like input demos that ran off like my Nintendo DS. So and they were impressed with it. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I did it like in fairly short time, I think. I'm curious, yeah. as a programmer, I tend to believe that the best programmers stand apart simply because they've had the experience of debugging similar problems and they know how to kind of throw the kitchen sink at things when they come up again in, in, in the future. But secondly, I think it's that other part that you just talked about there is like not knowing that there was a Nintendo middleware that can do something that was frustrating or you were doing yourself, right? And I think that it goes into kind of your, your tool bag is like things like inscription and, and, and just knowing that these things exist give you a, a running start as opposed to thinking, oh, I got to figure this out for myself completely from scratch. Yeah, and that's like kind of like the story of Digital Embryo is figuring out for yourself because... <laughs> When I got there and like started the job, there was no seniority. Everybody that worked there was a full sale grad. So I kind of was like, okay, cool. So this is like an extension of full sale almost, it felt like. And literally, there was no like senior experience. There was no one that like had shipped, but that's not true. Like they shipped a Nintendo DS game when I first got there called Cake Mania. They like did like the port for it for Majesco somehow digital embryo got like nintendo wii dev kits so they were just like all right we're gonna try to make a game and the owner there i guess had some connections so like he got like this one deal to make like a mini game collection because wii sports was so popular at the time yeah 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 so we started working on this game called summer sports and we didn't have a game engine and we had these nintendo wii dev kits so this is my time to shine Time to shine. Hey, I do that. This is what I do. You know, I, I started working on this framework, which I called Nucleus, because uh, it went with Digital Embryo, I guess. <laughs> cool name. Cool. Yeah. Imperial yeah. Nucleus. Where does it even start? Like, all right, we have no game engine. Like, for people thinking about, man, that's a massive problem. Where do you start? I kind of just did the same thing I did with the Nintendo DS dev kit, where I just kind of got, like, the main functionality things like assets working and like asset workflow yeah and nintendo had a it was sort of like a forum but it was like a news like a developer nintendo developer forum for for licensees or whatnot yeah so it was all like industry professionals in it and (laughs) i mean there was no seniority so I, i was like trying to go through like the documentation and do stuff and i remember i got caught up on this one thing because we were never taught it at full sale and it was I needed to allocate memory at a specific memory address. And normally you just, in C++, you just say new object. And the memory that you are allocated to is kind of just determined by the standard or whatever to see. But I'm working on hardware that needed this particular thing allocated at this particular memory address. And we were never taught that at full cell. And it's a thing called placement new. And uh-huh. I remember asking on the uh, Nintendo like news forums or whatever yeah and so it was like this dude that worked at retro studios yeah, and he yeah, yeah. he like chewed me out he's like what are you doing go buy a c plus plus book you don't have <laughs> idea what you're doing. he's like damn and i'm like all right dude whatever <laughs> you're right like was that even covered in our c plus plus book i definitely don't remember that in yeah. our three month courses yeah i mean i use it all the time now it's experience, right? Like you don't know about something if you haven't had to use it. And when you could like misuse the 
infinite amount of RAM you have in your computer versus when you're working on a console, right, that has a very finite amount of memory, you got to be very meticulous with it, I'd imagine. Yeah. And in the case of the Nintendo Wii, it had two memory banks. It had like your typical RAM storage and then it had like a, a faster RAM that was like closer to the processor. Um, okay. And so, wh- why is that important to know for engineers out there? So I guess like if you're working with data that's changing a lot, you would want something that's on the faster RAM. Mm-hmm. I think it, it just gets cached more into the, the CPU. This is so long ago. I mean, I'm kind of just talking off the cuff. but I still remember, man. It's impressive. Yeah. And I remember building, I really hesitate to call it like a memory manager, but I essentially mm-hmm. partitioned our more used assets to be in like that, you know, in like the fast RAM versus like other things that were less important. So you're in the Nintendo forums asking foundational questions, learning the (laughs) hard way, (laughs) what are things and how you go about doing them. But hey, you know, learning the hard way is still learning. And that, like you said, use it all the time everywhere. Mm -hmm. What ended up happening at Digital Embryo? Because I see, you know, you jumped to Rockstar afterward. Because you tell me, like, hey, a young team, no seniority, everybody's just kind of figuring this out on brand new hardware, which is the Wii back then. What did you guys end up shipping? Did you guys make it that far? We, we did, yeah. We, we shipped Summer. Uh, Summer Sports Paradise Island. That was the main first game built off of all that tech that we put together. Your Nucleus engine launched a debut Wii title for your team. Yeah. And like you were, you were saying, like, oh, yeah, new console, it's hard to work with. Dude, the Wii Remote was also brand like new to like yeah, our, yeah, yeah. you know the whole concept. So using like a gyroscope. Yeah, motion controls, right? Yeah, and this was Generation One Wii Remote, so it didn't have like that little like extender thing on it that made it better to give you more <laughs> fidelity, right? It just kind of had yeah. like what y'all pitch and roll depth is like in and out, right? Like the Z axis, and then you can go up and down, and then like left and right. Yeah, it basically just had a gyroscope and all it gave you was like a vector and like what it thought the controller was being swung in. Thought. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. thought is in big ass quotes because when you would swing the Wiimote, say mm-hmm. like say you swing it horizontally in front of you. Yeah, like a sword swing, like a horizontal sword swing. Yeah. Or a baseball bat swing, yeah. Yeah, so like when you're at the end of your swing and you stop, mm-hmm. the Wiimote, what I call, has blowback. So like the gyroscope is stopping and then blows back like in like some other direction. Oh shit. And like you got to like account for that. And like it there was like no like good libraries for it at the time and weird. I remember it was such like a tedious process trying to like come up with these just like weird algorithms that would just work with it. Was that you as the engine coder to do the input handling? Partially since it was like a mini game collection, we kind of just split up each programmer had like a mini game to work on. And I was doing both the Nucleus stuff and I had to work on mini golf. I didn't know you were a golfer. (laughs) I was uh, the mini golf guy for Paradise Island, summer sports. Did you have to do like research? You had to go out there and be like, all right, man, I got to play some mini golf. I forget how we did it all. I mean, like (sighs) the artists were kind of like also the game designers, I guess, because they would be building the courses of the the mini golf. It was pretty neat. Like we had like a lot of obstacles. The physics was done well because some guy was working full time on the physics. His name was Alex Silverman. And uh, I wonder what he's doing. Is that something you see typically is the artists are designers as well? I mean, at Full Sail, we didn't have any full blown designers. Mm. It was all just like Full Sail grads, which at the time Full Sail was just all like engineer kind of people that yeah. came out and the artists were also from full cell they were doing the other course that was cgi oriented 
It's crazy because like the studio was like like a dozen or so, like maybe even like twenty people, and they, we were like all full sale grads, I think, except for maybe like one or two shipping games on the Wii. I imagine the overhead was low. Like if these things are selling as anywhere near the normal going rate of Wii games back in the day, where everything kind of sold. And that's a good topic to touch on too, because that was my first experience with a game publisher. So we had we were working with this publisher called Destineer. I recall them. I don't think they had like a great track record in terms of like quality games. They kind of were like shovelware. Well, everybody <laughs> was trying to cash in on the Wii, right? Like everybody yeah. was buying Wii. So if you can get a game out there, you can turn the profit around. So I'm sure publishers just wanted content to to throw in a box. It was exactly that. You know, like they were just like, all right, do this and this. And I, I remember like we would be on calls and like he would be like, I like the art, but I want to change all this with the programming. And like, <laughs> oh my gosh. So it's true. Those crazy publisher stories are true. Yeah, yeah. It was a very like stereotypical publisher, like meetings and like being held up by milestones and stuff. In fact, there was a time where the company ran out of money and we didn't get paid for like a month until we hit like a milestone. That is a model I've seen is to get your next check for the next wave of development. You have to deliver a milestone build. Yeah. And Digital Embryo was just like hiring so many people like because like I guess it was like there I thought like more people would be faster game i guess yeah right more bodies equals finishing game sooner and we all know that that is a big fat ass lie yeah i was getting paid shit and they were getting paid like poverty wages it was pretty awful there was a lot of red flags at that place sure and after shipping summer sports at that point i was like trying to like reach out to like you know places and chris barasa your boy Chris Barasa from Full Sail, that's right. He had landed a job at Rockstar Games. And if you want to hear about that, he talks all about it on his episode. Yeah, but this is cool, right? This is kind of like the parallel paths in the universe converging, right? So now yeah. your string yeah. is coming into play. And here you are in Jersey, and yeah. you're now reaching out to your boy who's in San Diego. That's a big move, man. Yeah, it was for sure. Because like I, I had never been on the West Coast once in my life. So you hit him up. You're like, yo, Chris, uh, I need a new job. And he's like, all right, let me see what I can do. Yeah, he was stoked. He got my resume, I guess, put on the top and I got my call back from it. So it's important to call out that that was based off of the good relationship that you had in school. Him being excited to work with you again, to put your resume through on his side of things. Right. Because it, it could have totally been one of those situations of like, yo, Chris, can you help me out? And he's just like, no, this guy was a tough character to work with. <laughs> Yeah. And that was another thing that Full Sail was always saying. Like, it was all about networking. And it really is. Networking mm -hmm. is super important. What do you, What is it? You get, you get the phone call from like a Sarah Schaefer to be like, yo, come through, come, come fly out to get some sun, like Entourage style. Well, it, it wasn't that easy. <laughs> so the interview was three parts, I guess, or three stages, so okay. to speak. So part number one was, you know, a phone call. And uh, Ted Carson was on the line. And I still remember the questions that he asked. So this was me after working a long day, like long, like 16 hour day at like Digital Embryo. I'm like <laughs> sitting in the parking lot on my like dumb phone because this is back in 2008. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He was asking me some like tech questions and I, I kind of remember them. So the first few were like linear algebra questions. It was like, so like, how would you use a dot product? And how would you use a, a cross product? Mm -hmm. And Classic. I gave some simple answers, just like, oh, dot product. If you have a, a point in space and you want to test if it's on one side or the other of a plane, you can uh -huh. do a half space test with a dot product, whatever. And then yep. 
cross product, I was like, I gave the answer of like, if you have like some object oriented in in space and you know it's forward vector, you can figure out the right vector by cross product crossing the world up with your forward vector and that will give you your right vector and there you have it yo jay just dropped like the one question that you'll get on probably a hundred percent of all those like intro level gameplay engineering even game scripting interviews he's got to know that yeah it for linear algebra if you if you're doing a phone interview you definitely want to brush up on that or any interview really and other questions he asked was like a fun one which was if you have a signed short or unsigned short and it's zero and like you add negative one to it, what happens? And like, I, I remember answering, I was like, oh, well, it just underflows. And then the value is going to be like two to the 16th power. But that wasn't good enough for Ted. <laughs> what did he want? Ted was like, what is that number? <laughs> <laughs> he wants the specific. I mean, what, yeah. You, damn, yeah, back in the day, right? We didn't have the smartphones to like quickly bust yeah. out the calculator. Yeah, thankfully, I actually kind of knew the number. It, it's 65,536. You, how did you know that number off the back of your head? Because it's a it's a pretty important number. It's a, it's the 16 bits of what fits in an unsigned 16-bit integer. And I knew it back then, too, so that was cool. And then the final question he asked was something I didn't really get. He was talking about like how to properly, if something was happening like in this big open world, like how would you calculate various things and like i think the answer he was looking for is like oh you would use an octree or you would use like a bounding volume hierarchy yeah so i don't think i got that question but overall i guess i did well enough that i passed stage one phone interview it's funny you you mentioned this because it makes me think back to your hiring process at lightning games and how you're too easy and letting people in and thinking like (laughs) hey man you got to throw some ted carson questions at people Oh, yeah. And in fact, stage two was a coding test. And I actually used this coding test for some of the hires at Lightning Gaming. I took the same test that Rockstar sent me and I tried sending it out. It doesn't translate well, I don't think. I guess because everybody that I sent it to didn't even send it back. How effective do you consider that from a weed out perspective, right? Like if people ain't completing the test, you wouldn't want to work with them or, or is it the opposite? I'm so unsure because mm. I don't know if it's too difficult. For the level you're hiring? Yeah, I mean, I get like, because Rockstar obviously has high standards. Oh, yeah. But I, I kind of felt like the coding quiz was pretty fair. It, it essentially was you had one hour to take a bunch of input string and you would have to flip each word, but you can't flip the entire thing. Is it like you have to do it each letter, like each letter at a time kind of thing? Yeah, so if if it was like hello world, it yeah. would be hello world would be in the same order, but the words hello and world, the letters would be reversed. It's like all the string concatenation and manipulation, right? It's like detecting spaces, positioning, mm-hmm. things like this. It's all about delimiter detection, yeah? Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. So the main thing was understanding ASCII and using that the space character as a delimiter. Yep. ASCII 32, by the way. There you go. <laughs> That's not bad in an hour. Yeah, I remember like kind of panicking at first, but then like it kind of hit me like, okay, I can do this. Yeah. Was it like in in like pseudocode or you have to, are you submitting something that has to compile? Yeah, it has to compile. So it's funny stories that at the time I was living at a a place that didn't have internet. Hmm. And so I had to bring my computer to my friend's house who had stable internet. For this part of the interview. Yeah, yeah. I love that. That's the hustle of of what you had to do back in the day. 
Yeah, and the, and this is back with like uh, CRT monitors, I think. Oh <laughs> shit! Yeah, bringing that over, I think. It was like what fifty um, pounds. Yeah, that was cool. And they sent like an email with like the Visual Studio solution, and you just had to send it back within an hour. So I did the quiz, and mm-hmm. I sent it back within the hour, and then I realized, oh, there's like a little bug somewhere in it. So I had gone and like fixed that, and then fifteen minutes after. Words I sent I sent it again, being like, "Oh, like I fi- I fixed this. You don't have to take it." But the guy that would, like responded was like, "Oh, wow, awesome! That's cool that you went through and found that." So he was like, totally- "You don't remember who graded your submission?" It was someone on the Rage team. I can't. I, I mm. think I remember their. I would remember their face, but I don't remember their name. That's awesome, man. I think those are those little details, those little points in going above and beyond. And I equate this to like the same thing of. Writing an email after an interview, talking about a moment and then reaffirming, you know, thanks for your time. This is cool. Anything I can do, etc. Yeah, technically, deadline's over. You made your submission. But the fact that you kept pounding on it, debugging, finding a solution, submitting that, right? I think those are those little things that you that tend to stand you out against the crowd that people on the other side interviewing are excited to see. Like, oh, yeah, this is the type of person I want to work with. Yeah, I was thankful, like, you know, they weren't like sticklers about it or anything like mm-hmm. that. So. Mm-hmm. That's only stage two then. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so now you're on the final boss. Did you make it to yeah. the final boss? Stage the final three? boss. Yeah, so stage three was they, they fly me out to California and I do a face-to-face interview. How did that fly out feel, man? Like it, tell, it had to feel Hollywood and like, holy shit, this is the big time. This is AAA game development, not no more like we shovelware. I mean, I was feeling good. They set me up in a hotel, like a taxi and everything to the studio and all that. How old were you, out of curiosity? I was probably like 22. And I was feeling mad confident, like, going in the interviews. (laughs) Did you brush up on anything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, you know, because that digital embryo, I was like, I wrote the whole framework. I'm good. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hell yeah. You got solid experience under your belt. Yeah, but, like, had I known, like, I was like sitting among titans at the, at the <sighs> Rockstar interview. I probably would have been a little bit more nervous. But uh, yeah, so the interview was with Michael Crehan, Ted Carson, who I mentioned, Michael Carrington, and I think Tom Shepard was there. Okay. So it was, a, it was a pretty decent crowd. Apparently, and, Tom Shepard is like co-studio head now over there. And oh, yeah, cool. I think Mike and Ted have got, like, Mike's at Google. I think Ted's at Valve. And I've got to track down Mike Currington. Barasa called out Mike as a nominee. <laughs> so I got to go track him down and see what he's up to. Oh, neat. Yeah. But to, to, to your point about Titans, just, just to set the ground of what these engineers are up to these days. Yeah. They had me, you know, coding on the whiteboard, doing stuff like that. They asked me some like inheritance questions and like the diamond of death, if, if you know about that. I know the trilogy of evil. I didn't know. I don't remember the diamond of death. It's when you have two classes and you, you do multiple inheritance with both of those classes. Sorry, you have one base class at the top. Yeah. That has two classes derived from that. Uh-huh. And then you have a class below that that derives from those two classes. And that's not allowed because there's ambiguity in sure. the inheritance. Okay, that's where um, you get your diamond from, right? You got like yeah. A at the top, B and C are kind of same level. And then C points up to B and C, which is, I didn't even know that the compiler would let you do that. It, it doesn't, in fact. Okay. So that, okay, okay. that was the, the question kind of there. And then they asked me some like threading race condition questions and mm. stuff like that. Dude, uh, fucking race conditions still get me to this day. Like <laughs> to this damn day, like you just, and, and especially in Unreal where you're like, oh yeah, on game start or on tick start, this thing is initialized, right? 
it's safe to access like nope nope <laughs> you got you got to check yeah 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 i mean it, it is the future i mean like where we've already maxed out our, our cpus in terms of raw speed and clock cycles so now it's more about parallel processing i guess and Depending who you talk to, man, quantum computing is not too far away. That'll change things up for sure. I don't even know how that how that right. applies to software. Yeah, yeah. Like, what the <laughs> fuck? Um, how are we even going to take advantage of it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to know that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it was like a four person panel, just throwing questions at you on the whiteboard, and you're you're tackling them as they come. How do you get out of that thing? You know, the ride home, get in the call, you know, all those exciting moments. So, yeah, I think I answered like all the questions well. I remember Michael Carrington asked me a question about the V table and like I didn't know about the V table at the time. Is that for memory or something? That's when you have you use like polymorphism and like you have virtual functions. It's how like a derived class will know which version of a overrided function to use. Oh. It, it uses a lookup table called the V table, I guess, virtual table. This is why I encourage people to just go on as many interviews as possible because you're going to learn shit that you didn't know. Like yeah, you may not get sure. the job, but you're going to learn shit that oh, I should learn. I should know how to use this. Or it comes back to help you solve a problem in the future for the cost of your time. Yeah, unless I'm giving in the interview and then like I, I'm probably, <laughs> I'm not like asking any good questions, probably. To your point about just copying patterns and processes, right? Like just borrow from Rockstar or some of these other places. Sure. Yeah. So working at Rockstar was pretty exciting, too. They started me on Midnight Club. Wow, man, that was a, that's a big franchise. That's one of my favorite racers, even to this day. I was building the race editor tool. So there I am back there on you tools go. again. The race editor was going to be sick. I was building it in C Sharp. And you had like the whole like GUI interface, but you could move a mouse over it. And it would show a cursor on the actual game where your mouse was. And like you would be able to plant like nodes around the, the city for like to make tracks and stuff. So let me set this up. So I have my, you know, dev kit, PS3 or or Xbox, whatever, plugged in. The, the game is running and I have a way to move my mouse over an area and see that mouse in the game world. Yeah, and like exactly. get positions and, and add actors to the world. So like I was communicating through the network to the game. I forget how I did it. I remember going into like the Rage department, which is the Rockstar's engine department. And I, I remember asking like this one guy, I was like, is there a way to do this? And like, he like gave me this full rundown and like, it just worked. Like I was so surprised <laughs> that like everything just worked. Dude, they're yeah. tools. I'm curious to get your perspective as a tools engineer uh, with as much as you've done and what you know, because I always tell that the tools at Rockstar are some of the finest that I've seen to this day. Yeah. And I think that's always a, you know, indication of like a well, you know, well-suited like game studio is like mm -hmm. the tools and like, the people that know how to use the tools and the engine. I mean, if you have the engine in-house, you're already at like a huge advantage if mm -hmm. you have the people that wrote it. Hell it's, yeah. Uh, the fact that you can go right over to the Rage people and be like, yo, can I do this? Do I have access to any of this? And they're like, yeah, do this, yeah. this, this, and that. Bam. How, how common is that? Yeah, and, and it was also nice because we were in the San Diego office, which was their office as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's crazy because, yeah, to the point of one of the reasons that I think the tools are so cool is, like you said, in the engines, when you're writing this kind of like in-editor game simulation thing, that, so you could run the runtime and still have control of the editor to like add actors, move things around, change properties. 
there's a shit ton of work that goes into making that work. And, and sometimes it's, it's like hacking, right? It's things that, okay, this will never go into a ship thing or publish EXE. It's just for editing. The way that the Midnight Club seems to work, it completely gets away from even worrying about maintaining an editor, right? It just has the runtime and then you have some tools on top of it that let you author things. I guess it never like matured, like the tool itself, because I was working on it. They moved me over to Red Dead at some point. And they, mm-hmm. hold, they canceled that whole project, Midnight Club 5. Damn, and, man. So it was this your first cancellation? Yeah, but it was a, it didn't hit me hard or anything. I mean, I would have liked to see the, the race editor come mm-hmm. to life and have the designers use it. Because I put a lot of work into the undo, redo Yo. <laughs> functionality of that. Um, Damn. I don't remember. It's funny that you mentioned that, right? I'm working on Fortnite creative mode, right? And it's basically like make a game within a game. And the first thing that hit me when I when I loaded that up to try to kind of figure it out was like, there is no undo. And <laughs> and so, you know, you, you don't know how important it is or how much you take undo, redo for granted until you don't have it. And you make like a massive import of like 50 characters and then you can't undo. Now you have to go manually to each character and like delete it or move it or something like that. Yeah. And when you're building like a app or a tool, you have to kind of plan for undo redo because that is kind of integrated into every action that you do. So every everything that you can manipulate needs to have some sort of undo action to it. And it needs to have the, the opposite redo. <laughs> Well, your actions need to have a state, right? So something needs to be tracking, like, what are the actions that are being affected and what's the state of the game prior to or after to and being able to roll back. Yeah, dude. I mean, you you use like a a simple stack data structure of these commands, so Mm -hmm. to speak, and uh, you can like pop them on and off, you know, as your undo, redo stack and such. To me, it sounds simple. And the fact that it's done in every software, you... (laughs) I wonder hard. Like, I, I don't wonder hard. I know why, but like, not having it hurts. Yeah. So you get pulled off, you go to Red Dead Redemption, arguably the biggest game that we've ever worked on to all the accolades. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I wasn't too mad over that. And, you know, hell yeah, I was moving to Red Dead. Everybody, like, everybody got moved to Red Dead there. <laughs> everybody. So. It's, it's just one of those <laughs> things that happen. It's very common that you have two, three projects at a studio, and then, you know, one is gearing up to get published right or has a ship date or you know gets announced and now it's like oh shit we got to finish this thing and it's all hands on deck and projects will get shuffled or canceled or or put on ice and and i think what was that that was so for the next year of your life what do you remember working on red dead yeah so they had me on various odd jobs i guess you were like a firefighter like a mercenary for hire yeah but i mostly kind of like worked in developed and maintained like the asset pipeline i worked with jason jareka and rob so jason jareka was also on your podcast coincidence so the asset pipeline for an open world game like red dead you know was pretty crazy had a lot going on it was always breaking at some point or another like you would write some pearl script because the whole thing was written in pearl by the way do people even write in Perl still? No, because I think like Python was sort of emerging at the time. Now, like if you're going to write something in Perl, it's probably better to just write it in Python. Because to your point about like APIs that just do things, yeah. and you know, Python has almost everything out there by this point. Yeah, it, mm-hmm. it's very well supported, I guess. And yeah. you know, but Perl, Perl has it's like you know, it's pretty cool for writing files and like saving out 
generated files or whatever. And that's essentially what we were kind of doing a lot. So it made sense to use Perl. But as with any scripting language, once you get to a point, it becomes hard to manage. And mm-hmm. like this kept growing and growing and growing. And uh, so we had, we had like these automated computers that we called the monkeys. The build monkeys. Yeah. They were running 24-7 with like some batch scripts that were, you know, calling out our various Perl scripts, compiling assets. I imagine now these are all like cloud instances, right? That just kind of spin up, do some things or, or, or every so often building as opposed to like on-prem physical towers. Yeah, I guess mm-hmm. so. That would make sense, especially how accessible like, you know, cloud services are nowadays. Yeah, right. Especially now that you have multi-studio teams spread all over the place, right? They, are they all going to kind of communicate to San Diego to be like, yo, give me the latest build or build this thing? Yeah. And DevOps has become a, a job that didn't a exist thing. back then. Yeah. yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So part of like the whole asset pipeline, I remember I worked, no one told me to do this, but I had like this idea to make like this heat map that tracked like the memory usage for environment artists to follow. Cause uh, the environment artists would, they would love to like put down like a ton of trees and Mm -hmm. trees used up a lot of memory. So part of the automated system was me teleporting to every, like every like grid point in Mm -hmm. the world, taking a bunch of like metrics of memory and stuff and saving it off. And then at the end of all of that, I would output this heat map, that would be like, okay, a lot of memories being used in this location. Go optimize it. Yeah. And I remember Ted Carson liked it. So he was like, oh, that's really cool. And and like he like offered some like uh, changes that I would do. So and that got kept in the whole asset pipeline. I guess hopefully I never talked to like any of the, the tech artists, but I mean, I, I think they found it useful. Because I think Ted, if I remember correctly, Ted was like tech director or something like that on the project. Yeah. He was up there in terms of his engineering impact. And I felt like he was an awesome guy for for the responsibility he had. He always seemed to be on the floor helping out all the programmers, right? Like specifically with any math-related things, for sure. That that was his specialty. (laughs) Oh, man. That's like the perfect segue. Um, Mm. Because, yeah, so Ted had asked me to fix this this pretty big issue. Was it like, oh, good job on this heat map thing. I'm going to throw you on this big-ass issue now. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Because, I mean, I was always kind of just getting thrown everywhere, mm-hmm. uh, I feel like. Junior talent, man. That's what, you, what it's good for. It's just like, hey, go fix that thing. Go spend time over there. Figure this out. So if you recall, there was like these monitors throughout the office that were like, number of bugs fixed by <laughs> they're like this the, person the leaderboard the, the, the developer yeah. leaderboards right it's like you're either way behind or you're doing great yeah basically just like it was kind of like oh here's the top person that fixed the most bugs this month or something so i was assigned to this one issue where grass was floating in the air like various like so like in the throughout the world of red dead there's like these little grass billboards and they get procedurally dropped onto the world and sometimes they get dropped and they don't they aren't flush with the ground. They might hit like a rock or something. So I was tasked to fix that problem. And it's funny because like you're like Ted's all about like mathematical mm-hmm. like, uh, stuff and like helping with math. Ted was like when he was telling me this issue, he's like he gave me like huge mathematical way to solve this issue, like using like trigonometry and all this stuff. Yeah. And I was like nodding my head, like, yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> well, you, you're looking, you're looking for like collision points in the world, right? For every yeah. object. My mind doesn't work that way. <laughs> I'm very rational and very logical, but 
traditional math equations and stuff. Yeah. It's just not how I do things. I'm picturing the like the Homer Simpson gif where like <laughs> they're just talking to him and he's kind of dead in the face, right? But like nodding. Yeah, I mean that was pretty much me when Ted was like <laughs> telling me like the no mathematical way to solve this. Okay. Either way, okay. I I look at the code and I, I I understand what's going wrong and I'm just like, well, if I just you know make sure that I insert the the billboard and like that both the bottom vertices are you know flush with the ground, then I should mm-hmm. be good. And I kind of just like algorithmed my way through it without any type of math. Really, it was that simple. I, I submitted a fix and you look up on the monitors, I'm number one because there was thousands of these crass instances yeah, of, man. of so like that's like that, the the number one like I guarantee you when you're in QA, that's like the easiest bug to file, right? It's like oh grass yeah. clipping through terrain or through a building or something like that. Oh my god, I feel so bad for the QA because they they like took a screenshot of like every instance that happened and like yeah. it was like it, there was a bug reported for every like one of those and i'm like mm-hmm. how I many think, do you remember how many you killed with that submit it was hundreds like Damn. easily hundreds so like by just that one little fix i i now was on the top of the leaderboards because i had like hundreds of and like that like just made like the whole integrity of that whole system just like bogus because like it was just like <laughs> clearly i'm not fixing this many bugs it mm-hmm. just did like one little thing but, yeah that was like vacation right i mean it was it was all for fun anyway nothing really Still, it still feels good to see a name on top of those leaderboards in the right in the right place. I remember, I remember how it was. I remember how it went down. Like, you know, you can definitely say there's some manipulation that's happening to your employees with that thing, but mm-hmm. it did feel good for for sure. And unfortunately, yeah. we never really had reviews in place like that. But in a traditional environment where it's just like, yo, look, I did this much work. This is how you can quantify my contribution. And here's why I could get promoted or get more money or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I feel like at Rockstar, it was a, it was a very like office politics way to promotion. You had to kind of like use charisma and like talk to like the, the management in that way. Like something that I wasn't very good at. Which is like a foreshadowing to uh, post project. <laughs> let me let me see if I understand what you're saying, right? Like it, you, it sounds to me as you're saying you are promoted not on the quality of your work. You're kind of valued on I don't know social superpowers that don't really factor into the work you're doing. But at the same time, you know, like the, it is considered. I, it wasn't just like strictly like you know smoozing to like the upper management to get places but it certainly was needed mm-hmm, <laughs> yes because mm-hmm. i kind of always kept to myself i feel like back then i kind of like just you know talked to you guys my friends and never really like engaged in like that office politics though <laughs> i mean it seems like you enjoyed what you did and it showed i guess right like in, in the quality of the work and the things you were building not regressing right because i've seen it happen right like you do a bunch of fixes you're at the top of the leaderboard and then qa makes a pass on it or some some other check goes in and breaks a bunch of things and then now you're kind of at the top of like the most bugs leaderboards like <laughs> yeah. yeah so that was just like one little thing though that that grass fix the other main thing i remember working on was i i did the ambient train that went around the world this was cool Jay, because that was one of my missions. One of my missions was down in Mexico where you board the train with Landon Ricketts. Right? I mean, the train is a system that lived in the world. And I remember as a designer having to script into that system, right? To be like, grab the train, stop it here, remove it from the schedule, set it to be boardable, 
and and that back to the point of grass clipping in the world getting peds from the static world to this dynamic physics moving thing and seated there was just a whole bunch of nightmares a whole bunch of bugs generated from that thing oh yeah and i remember that was pre and post you like you went in there and you did your magic and then things just worked well i didn't do the magic eric koski the the physics programmer was the one doing the magic however i was the one prodding you were doing him like the to, schedule <laughs> i was like <laughs> i was like I, I need this i need this done. <laughs> it takes a team right it takes a team the ambient train was independent to the mission trains so like i feel like i think like all the mission designers had like their own instance of the train but i actually i guess in the end it kind of worked the same but yeah i was i only was tested with the ambient train so when you weren't in any particular mission this is just the train that would go around the world and supposedly stop and let passengers on and off i also had to script how the ai passengers would react to like getting shot up and stuff though too (laughs) <laughs> and oh, I remember I just, damn so you got to do what we did on design only on like this little ambient train thing and like i remember like i randomized based off of like because uh, all the actors you could kind of like query some information from them mm-hmm. and i would like take that information and say okay this guy's going to be aggressive and fight back and then these <laughs> these people would go and cower like in the yeah corner. you could yeah. set yeah there was i felt yeah. like that was my first taste of AI scripting to a new level because you can really tune a lot of their parameters that could determine personalities. It's something as simple as like aggressivity to cowardice, right? Like that little scale would lead to pretty cool things. It's like, all right, if 50% of the people are set to flee when I punch a person, but you have the other 50% that are like, no, I'm going to fight back and I'm going to shoot you. Like, oh, <laughs> shit. Right? It's like, that's that rock star magic sauce of uh, emergent gameplay. You guys were full-time working in that scripting language, so hats off to you guys. Did I, you find yeah. it challenging to work in or were you able to just kind of work, look at the code and be like, okay, this is, what the, this is my equivalent script hook? Yeah, I think for the most part, I got it working. The hardest part I think I remember was the train scheduling. Like, because I had to make, because there was two trains that would go around the world on the tracks, and I had to make sure they never ran into each other. Oh, (laughs) did that Uh, happen while you were working on it? Like, oh shit, this can't. It was happening, and I had to make sure that it would, like, you know, train A would never be near train B, I guess. And uh, because if they did run into each other, there was, like, no physics, they would just, like, you know, clip through each other and it would look stupid. Oh. Okay, okay. And Rockstar hates that stuff, right? Like Rockstar, that's the level of polish of like, yo, things need to look perfect. And to my knowledge, I've never seen it happen. I've never seen anybody like show it off like Mm -hmm. that the trains can run into each other. So I hope I did a good enough job. I don't remember. (laughs) There's going to be a remaster. I imagine there's a remaster at some point, man. I definitely look forward to going back in that world. Yeah, and then the only other thing I did at Rockstar was I kind of wrote some script to code interfaces. So the scripting language that we were just talking about, yeah. which is the, the in-house scripting, that has to work with the C++ game code. So I, if a designer needed some specific thing to happen, I, would, I sometimes wrote that uh, interrupt between the code and the script. Oh, okay. That was a lot of my interaction with the gameplay NGs, right? Was, hey, I need a new hook exposed from code to script so that I can muck with it. Yeah, I, I didn't do that too often. I only had like a little bit of it, but yeah, that was someone's full-time job, I think for sure. The other, the other programmers. Did you know, 
Did you think that Red Dead Redemption was going to be the success it was when you were working on it? Because I didn't. I didn't. I felt like, yeah, this game would be cool, but I didn't know it was going to be received the way it was going to be received. I mean, like, because they already proved themselves with GTA. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we all knew, like, this is, like, the next the offshoot from GTA or whatever. I think you, if you recall, like, the game was buggy as hell, like, up until, like, the final moments, kind of. Like, it was... I, forget. It was, I actually forget about that, yeah. Yeah, it, it was, like, it was rough to run the game. Like, it, it barely ran in debug. You had to, like, kind of, like, optimize parts of the code out, even when you ran in debug, for it to even just, like, have a, a reasonable frame rate. But yeah, I, th- I think that's just like how AAA development kind of goes. Like when every system is at like 80% finished, it just feels like a mess because mm-hmm. everything just kind of like is not complete. And then at some point, all that just comes together and like, you know, it's like now it's shippable. <laughs> Yo, yeah, that's, so, that's a total fact and truth of what we do, Jay, is yeah. the game, just if the game even works... That's the first thing. And and that's how we kind of operate, at least back in the day, right? Before these kind of live games, the Destinies and the Fortnites and things like that of the world. But back then, yeah, it's like, hey, things work. Okay, moving on. And it's not until you're trying to play this thing and you're taking it online and, and you're like, wow, you know, this happens a lot of crashes here or this doesn't work the way I expected. And then, then becomes like, okay, the game is quote unquote, working from beginning to end now now you got to polish that sucker and <laughs> and that that is a whole other beast i guess you you can say i don't know if you would use these terms for rockstar but you can say like getting a game to uh, alpha or beta to taking it to shippable is like a huge marathon march oh yeah it, and it's the hardest part of game development for sure yeah and it's like it's it's the part that you know nobody wants to do because they they did all the fun part already all the fun stuff is done yeah yeah but i guess if you're motivated enough you get it out there i you know i question the way different places motivate their employees for that part (laughs) but we did it right we did it we got through it and and i i don't know about you man i have kind of like the neuralizer effect of like yeah i went through hell but we all did it we were there together and and we got to kind of enjoy some sweet benefits after the fact yeah, we all got a whole month off, actually, at the end of Red That's Dead. That's unheard of, bro. I've never yeah. gotten a month off ever. Ever yeah. since that month off, I've never gotten a month off. Yeah, that month off was fun. Danny Bulla and Chris Barasa and I went on a cruise. And I never, we, I had never been on a cruise before. So that was Royal Caribbean, bro. That was, that was yeah. my first taste of Royal Caribbean. And I was like, yeah, I'm a fan now. Like, anytime yeah. I go on a cruise, I'm like, yo, give me that Royal Caribbean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, was, it was awesome. That was a good times. Highly recommend. Have you been back on a cruise since? No. Wow. I guess to be fair, it's either your cup of tea or it's not, right? And I happen to be of the latter, where I love, I love cruising. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. If I had the right people to go again, sure. Yeah. The That's one thing, um, Danny had this rule, and I, it's definitely a good rule to to use when you go on a cruise. It's you tip well because you're going to see the same bartender again and again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> throughout your week there so they'll, they'll hook you up when when you do so good tip good yeah. tip after rockstar i moved back to philadelphia um so after red dead they mm-hmm. laid off a whole bunch of people i was a part of that we were we were kind of heavy for sure we, yeah. we kind of yeah. staffed up a lot of people to finish yeah. that game at the time for sure you tended to see this right it's like you have your core team 
and then you double the size to finish a game, and then you kind of go back down to your 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 lean fighting weight, so to speak. Yeah. Which which I think was a shitty process, right? And and you talked about potentially feeling like if you played the politics game, you might have survived that that round. Yeah, exactly. But whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. things you know, it is how it is. I remember like driving out of the parking lot after the layoff and feeling so relieved like i was like free like because yeah. we were working long hours you know throughout the whole and even though we had that whole month off when, when i got back i i did not feel refreshed still yeah so you know worked out i guess you were relieved when you left rocks like a lot of people can take that a different a bunch of different ways but you were relieved you're like yes like the job is done i can move on to other things i was so like relieved and like happy that i i thought that I could make it in indie games. And at that point, I was like, all right, I'm going to become an indie game developer. That was the time, right? That was the time that like Zynga was catching fire and Facebook games were a thing. Yeah, it was like the indie game bubble. Like Super Meat Boy came out, Splunky, like the original Splunky, like FTL. Yeah. And this is like the, the dawn of XNA. That's right. That's like the Xbox small games. What do you call that? Framework? API? Yeah. And... Uh, Eric Kosky, who I mentioned, who was like the physics programmer, uh, he 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 made like an XNA game like after Rockstar uh, called Thunder Moon, which is you know like he 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 had kind of the same idea, I guess. So I started working towards that goal. I pretty much was flying by the seat of my pants. Like I had like this half baked idea where I would build a game engine and stream development on Twitch, which would then like build a, like a community, and that would be like my form of marketing and all that. Well, I didn't realize that I'm not built to be a streamer (laughs) okay yeah yeah i I don't have the extroverted qualities to want to sit in front of a camera and talk to people on a daily basis it's just i can't do it Uh, that's the (laughs) i think that's the tough part that a lot of people underestimate right is the consistency and the the repetition right you got to do this thing day in day out or have a set schedule that you're just on sounds to me like you need an mc that's what it sounds like to me oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) but you do have a twitch channel though I do, and I stream various things on it. I've been doing like retro speedrunning. There's a, a marathon coming up called Big Twenty, where you there's twenty NES games, and they all have goals, and then a bunch of people get together, and we all race to finish those goals. And it usually takes like four hours to do it all. How would you describe Harmony to people, and why? When when should they check it out? Look into it, contribute to it. So I use Harmony at my job currently, just with like the internal team. I haven't really written any documentation, so it's hard for me to be like, oh, go check it out, because it's it's a lot of code. And, <laughs> you know, the, the build process is not exactly trivial. But uh, if you check out the GitHub, it's really close. I feel like I'm at the cusp where I'm about to declare that it's in beta. Oh, and shit. That's big. At that point, I would then, you know, start writing documentation for it, because, like, it's feature complete at that point. It's so close. Like, I, I just want... If there's like a whiteboard behind me and like yeah. I have like three main like pillars that I have left to do. The end of this year, you think? I want to say so. If I can really crank it out and then. Is that realistic to say like 2022 going to beta? Yeah, I think so. Because the hard things are coming together. There's really like one last portion, which I call the entity creator portion, which is like where, because you can already create text and you can create like sprites and all mm-hmm. that stuff. But now it's about putting those together and being able to like visually see 
all your different sprites work together. And then like you'd be able to like transform those various uh, kind of like Photoshop. So I'm building that part, part out. This is exciting. The fact that the GitHub is there and people can go check it out and know that there's a beta, eventually insight, and then documentation on how you could use this to build your own 2 slash 2.5D games. Yeah, because I have I have a dream game that I want to create. It's in my head right now. And Talk to me I, about your dream game that you would build on the Harmony engine. So FTL is like this game that came out where like you manage like all these like a spaceship, like all the different components of it, like the oxygen, the engines and such. Mm-hmm. I want to take that game, put it in a 2D perspective where it's like a platformer, like kind of like Splunky or okay. like Mario. So you kind of like an open dollhouse view of your ship and you'd be able to move around. But in the game of FTL, there's like these random events where like something will happen. And it's just like a yes or no thing where you accept if you go down on a thing. Like, for instance, there's like spiders like on a planet and you can yeah. choose to do something. I want to actually make it so you land on the planet, go and do stuff on the surface of that planet. Uh-huh. Everything would be streamed in no loading screens or anything everything would be kind of just like fluid and you'd go on the planet surface do mm-hmm. something all this bad stuff might happen it's all like maybe procedurally generated and you'd Sounds make like it back you'd be able to like you rescued this person now they can join your crew or you did some sort of like mercenary hit job whatever like mission you accepted that that took you there it's it's kind of like open ended. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like a No Man's Sky level of like procedural big world plus these like very open world mechanics for different ways that you can solve different quests and then have this kind of persistent player record thing. Yeah, so it's basically like Star Citizen but in 2D. That's a better way to sell it. And I'm just like one person, so subtracting a whole dimension, making it 2D makes it actually like almost a reasonable like scope i mean it's still probably large in scope but would that be kind of something you build on the side or would you kind of want to go full time into that thing it sounds like something that's fun to work on the side in tandem with your day job the day job's paying my bills right now so you know gotta stick with it but i i've been building the whole engine with it yeah you're the core tech director bro you can't go anywhere i'd probably just you know do it on the side and i think i would be more interested in streaming if i was doing actual game development because i feel like Doing engine development on Twitch is very like dry and not interesting. It's fun. It's fun. I think you could wrap them together, right? It's like, hey, I built this part of the engine to do this specific thing and check it out. Now it's going to pay dividends. Like, watch me build yeah. this gameplay system. Yeah. That could be cool, bro. I think it's awesome to hear the dream game you would make on your own technology. Two things I want to ask you is where can people connect with you, see your work? I know you mentioned your GitHub. I'll link to that. And you have a Twitch channel game overture i'll definitely link to that is there anything else people could connect with you on or you want to direct them to i make it kind of easy i'm game overture on like everything it's game underscore overture and then you should be able to find my twitter i guess and then like my github and such twitch the last question i gotta ask you as if you heard the show before you know that i'm gonna ask you if there's anybody that you would nominate to fall out of the play area it would probably be someone that I mentioned, you know, during the podcast. I don't know how accessible any of these people would be, but I mean, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing what Michael Crean's been up to, what maybe like Eric Kosky's been up to. Also, Ryan Dormanesh, he hit me up. I didn't have a chance to mention Ryan him, Dormanesh but, is up here. He's not. Yeah. I, I had like lunch with him not too long ago. He's he's in Seattle somewhere. Okay. 
I like all three of these guys. I definitely, you and I have all had drinks with Eric Kosky and Mike Crehan. I think I've ran a tough mutter with Mike Crehan last year. So all these people, and I and I run into Eric Kosky probably damn near every GDC I go to. So oh, awesome! These guys are within reach, and I would love to invite them on to the show and say, blame Jay Nobler for throwing your name <laughs> into the bed. Yeah. Yo, Jay, thanks for coming on. Any last words for the people listening out there? Damn, that's a hard question. <laughs> I can't be like, oh, go write your own game engine. It'll be a good idea because it's probably <laughs> not a good idea. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Words of experience shining through. Don't go build your own game engine. But like you should maybe should. experiment. Like learning how to program in a certain language is way more useful than learning how to use some like visual scripting of your game engine of choice or whatever. Okay, so so you you've learned so much as a result of building a game engine that you you want people to experience that because of what they're gonna learn, but at the same time you're like, yo, building an engine is fucking a long process for no for very little payoff in in the beginning, right? Once you build it, yeah, you can build a ton of content on it. Yeah, I mean, I've been working on Harmony for over ten years, and it, it it's like even if I want to go to a game jam, like I can't even like get people to like come and join me because they don't know my game engine. It's like It's something I hadn't really considered. It's sort of a very lonely process, I guess, unless you have a team. Would you have done anything differently for the Harmony Engineer endeavor? Well, what I would have done differently was not go back to Philadelphia because it brought me into Lightning Gaming, which is great. But it sort of like directed me to building this game engine, which I don't regret either. So it's sort of like a butterfly effect Mm. where I, I... I could have chosen to maybe stick on the West Coast or somewhere else than Philadelphia, but choices have been made. Yeah, is that because of the the access to development resources and having more, I guess, game developers around? Yeah, like I like if I was like at some other studio, I would have never created this engine. So yeah, I mean, now that I have it, it's kind of like chosen the path for me. Now I want to be this indie game developer that writes this dream game that i have and maybe yeah. and maybe this is the better choice you know then so who knows <laughs> it remains to be seen that's interesting yeah. bro it's interesting to hear like you look at what could have been had you not put your time into this but then I, from the outside looking in i'll tell you from my perspective i think it's awesome that you have this job that has allowed you to build your own game engine over all these years while putting it through its paces and and getting the feedback on how good it is and what to work on next in uh, an actual game that ships for all the all the, the 50 plus games that lightning games gets out there and just be able to refine that thing and i'm excited to see what the hell you crank out on it when it goes into beta <laughs> that's what i'm hyped for thank you yeah dude yo i gotta get out of here you've been a it's been awesome connecting with you like you know you know what that goes like like we were roommates yeah and and we've been on cruises. We've been on Life Crunch together. We ship Red Dead together. We've enjoyed some amazing launch parties. And uh, thank you for coming on to my show, Jay. Yeah, I, I had an awesome time. Like, I was, you know, kind of nervous going up this whole thing. I'm not sure how it would go, but I had an awesome time. Anybody that's, like, kind of hesitant about coming on the show, you shouldn't. You know, Diaz is the best MC. <laughs> <laughs> you gave me that nickname and i at the time i had no idea what you were talking about i was like why why are you giving me the mc I, i'm not an mc i don't know how to rhyme or <laughs> rap or rock the mic or anything like that and and it's funny over the years 
you know, this thing, whatever I was doing over at Lumberyard, it has kind of come out and has allowed me to see what the heck you saw in me way back whenever. So it's, it's hilarious. 39, finally, finally, finally done at last. Thank you for your patience and understanding as I learned to be a parent and completely reinvent my life, routines, and workflows. How do you enjoy hearing about Jason's journey through game dev to where he is now writing his own game engine that should be available on GitHub if you're curious. You can find the link to his GitHub and check out more as well as how to get a hold of him or watch his retro game speed runs on his Twitch channel in the show notes. On the next episode, the big 4-0, I bring on good friend, current head of production for Vertebrae, a Snap Inc. company, Adrian Cho, a former outsourcing manager at 343 Industries, who he has worked on a few Halos, and before then, he was at Bioware Edmonton, working on a couple of Mass Effects, to where he's now made a jump to big tech and hardware over at Snap. It's a special episode unlike any other. I look forward to hearing your feedback, so make sure to follow so you get notified when it debuts. I used to like to say new episodes debut every other Monday, but these days, I just don't know. So I hope to get it out before November. Thank you, Devs, very much for listening. I encourage you to send me any questions for me to read out and answer by hitting me up at either the show website, outofplayarea.com, or my personal website, lkingpin.com. As always, you can hit me up at john at outofplayarea.com. Stay strong, stay true, stay dangerous. Ah, I miss saying that. Bring them home, Mega Rain. Flight attendants, prepare for takeoff. Cabin crew, please take your seats. We are now about to enter the out of play area. Yeah. If you can't reach me, I apologize. Since we out of play, I never compromise. John D and YC know we got the vibe. Make sure you hit that follow when you hit subscribe. Out of play area podcast. Out of play. Out of play area podcast. We out of play. It's just a little something for the game devs. Stay strong, stay true, and stay dangerous. Had to switch the styles for a challenge. Best thing out of Harlem since Young Miles Morales. A new podcast comes to provide the balance with game dev veterans and rising talents. Out of play. Welcome to the Out of Play Area Podcast, a show by game devs for game devs. With no ads, no BS, just the real.